Over the past couple of weeks, we've heard a lot about President Trump. In fact, in any given week, we hear a lot about President Trump. And I know some of you love him, some of you hate him, and that's okay. But regardless of what you think about him, one of the things that's come to light in the last week is Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who is paid $600,000 a year to sit on a Ukrainian company's board. And the company's name is Burisma. And I just wanted to remind you that you and I, we don't have the kind of name recognition or connections or money or clout to get one of our kids or to open the door for one of our kids to make a half a million dollars a year. I know this congregation. I'm just telling you what you don't have, okay? So in case you, in case you needed to be reminded of that, okay? You don't have those kind of, you don't have those kind of connections. <laughs> and here's the thing. Everybody does it. So Chelsea Clinton, I don't know if you know this, but back in 2014, she was making, guess how much? $600,000 a year as a consultant for NBC News. And just this last year, lest you think I'm ragging on Democrats only, uh, Jenna uh, Bush Hager signed a deal, inked a deal with the NBC Today Show, and she's making $4 million a year. Now, yes, she was a former teacher, but again, again, the rich and the powerful play by a different set of rules. Can we acknowledge that today? Regardless of where you fall on the political continuum, can we just acknowledge that kind of in America and in China and everywhere else, the rich and the powerful play by a different set of rules? They just do. And, and so we see this clearly in the case of beloved Aunt Becky from 1990's Full House. Bless her heart, as we say in the South. Um, poor Becky is being accused of, of paying the University of Southern California a half a million dollars to admit her two daughters using fake athletic credentials. Supposedly, they were on the crew team, right? But they weren't, okay? And so that's what she's been accused of. And again, again, you and I, the people in this room, we don't have the kind of money and connections and cloud and name recognition to get our kids into the University of Southern California. Now, what we have in this room is a number of us could, if we chose, we could clean toilets for Asbury University for a decade, and after that, they would pay your kids half tuition. Isn't that the kind of deal that's going on? Something like that. So that's what we can muster in this room. That's what we got. Can I let you in on something? This kind of stuff actually bothers God. It bothers God when the rich and the powerful play by a different set of rules, and it bothers God when the rich and the powerful use their wealth and power to oppress the poor so that they become richer and more powerful. It actually bothers God. God is bothered by these kinds of things. Yes, God is a God of love, God loves, but God is also a God of justice. God wants a just society. Um, and depending upon your background, you may have heard a lot of sermons about justice, or like me, you may have never heard a single one. And part of that is because of something that happened in America. But before I get there, I just, if I had a bottom line today, it's a statement of how things should not be. The rich make the rules, and the rules benefit the rich. Um, some people will read that proverb, the rich rule over the poor, and they will do it, amen, right? As if it's a statement of, woo, we ought to be this way. No, no, okay? So 
So I wanna get there. So in order to do that, I need to tell you what happened in America in the 1920s. In the 1920s, American religion, Christianity kind of split in two different directions. And on the one hand, you had a group of people who preached the gospel. I'm gonna preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna get men and women saved and get them into heaven. And I believe the Bible. And when the Bible tells me something, I believe it. And they kind of split off from the people who said, oh, I'm gonna stick up for the oppressed. I'm gonna stick up for the poor and the downtrodden. I'm not so sure all that stuff in the Bible is really true or happened, but you know, it's good stories, and I, but I'm gonna stand up for those who need to be stood up for. And so there was kind of this split. My background and my tradition as a Baptist was in the gospel tradition. I heard the gospel every week, but I never heard a preacher tell me that God cared about justice. And so I wanna tell you this morning where I think the church in America is headed. I think we're headed to a place in 2020, in 2030, in 2040, where we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are advocating and working for justice. It's not either or, it's both and. And in order to do that, I wanna introduce you to the prophet Amos. Amos was a contemporary of Isaiah, which meant he lived at the same time that Isaiah lived and he preached his messages sometime around 760 BC. And depending upon how you interpret a couple of Hebrew words, either Amos was a poor shepherd or he was a wealthy landowner that had sycamore trees. And you could read it either way. So either Amos is this poor shepherd who's shaking his finger at the rich on behalf of God or he's one of the rich people shaking his finger on the half of God going, hey, we need to get our act together, whoa! <laughs> so you could read it either way. Now what was going on at this time is uh, Israel and Judah had just unprecedented prosperity. This was the time immediately after David and Solomon. Judah and Israel had control of all the major trade routes still, and so all that trade, all that tax revenue came in made it very prosperous. The problem is that the rich were getting richer off of people who were stuck in debt. This is what was going on in 760 BC. I need to remind you of that. This is 760 BC. The rich were foreclosing on houses and land and they were using uh, that money to make themselves richer and then they would pay the people who were stuck in debt a lower wage that couldn't support their family so that the people stuck in debt would have to borrow more money in order to pay their bills. Again, this is 760 BC. To add insult to injury, they were using the court system to bring about outcomes that benefited them financially. They rigged the courts so that if you were a person stuck in debt or you were poor and you took them to court, you lost. Even though God had set up the system to bring about justice. So the rich were building bigger and bigger summer homes while the majority of people were concerned about where their next meal was coming from. Again, this is 760 BC. Judah and Israel were suffering from huge economic disparity and economic injustice. And I wanna walk you through a couple of passages. The first is Amos chapter two, verses six through eight. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I won't let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. 
Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. So the wealthy are ignoring the poor, selling them into debt slavery, and denying them representation in the courts. God looks at that and says, whoa, hey, wait a minute, pause, time out. Are you Israelites the same group of people that a few miles back I rescued you out of Egypt, right? Like you were being oppressed and you were in slavery and all your hard labor was enriching your Egyptian masters. You cried out to me for help. I delivered you, brought you into this prosperous land and now you're turning around and doing the very thing the Egyptians did to you to each other? Do I have this straight? Am I understanding things? Don't make me come down there. Like this is God's kind of attitude that's coming through Amos. And you can kind of get a sense for this, uh, for, about this from some of the things he says. My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. And then in verse 15, I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy. Again, this is 70, 760 BC. I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their winter mansions and their summer houses too, all their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. And then in verses 10 through 15, how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, you build beautiful stone houses. You won't live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you'll never drink wine from them. I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut. It is an evil time. And then the kicker is in verses 14 and following and then 21 through 24. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you've claimed. Hate evil, love what is good, turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord, of God, the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. And then the kicker, verses 21 through 24. Uh, I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. What God is saying through the prophet Amos is your worship is disconnected from how you're treating people. And that bothers me. Your worship is you come in and you do all the right things when you're assembled in the temple and you're gathered and you sing all the things the right way, but then you go out and you oppress one another, you steal, you cheat, you do these things, and it's totally disconnected. So part of what God is saying through the prophet Amos, through the prophet Amos is true worship of God should always lead to justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. That's the way Jesus put it. In chapter six, he says this, can horses gallop over boulders? Can oxen be used to plow them? That's how foolish you are when you turn and hear these two key words, justice into poison and the sweet fruit of righteousness into bitterness, okay? I don't know if you know this, but the eight richest people in the world have as much wealth 
as the poorest 3.75 billion people in the world, okay? I don't know if you, so eight people are as wealthy as 3.75 billion people. That's half the world's population. Now, if, if you're God and you see that and you look at that, are you okay with the rich simply getting richer? Are you okay with the rich uh, enriching themselves at the expense of those who are vulnerable? Or do you have an expectation that the rich and the powerful will use their wealth for vulnerable people? I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. The word justice is used 200 times in the Old Testament. And many of the times that it's used, it's connected with what one biblical scholar calls the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. So when God is using this word, I want justice, he has in mind how we're treating specific groups of people. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. In the ancient world, these were the people who were most at risk of being taken advantage of. Widows didn't have a husband to stand up for them, defend them. Uh, orphans, the same thing, no parents, no status in, in society. Foreigners, again, the same thing. There's no one from your tribe and the poor. So these are groups of people who are vulnerable and susceptible to be taken advantage of. They're vulnerable people in the ancient society, which is why after the resurrection of Jesus, the early Christians flipped the Roman world upside down because of how they treated the most vulnerable members of Roman society. Remember, it was the Christians who went through the trash heaps looking for the children that had been abandoned by their Roman parents. You're not more vulnerable than being left to die in a trash heap. That's vulnerability. <laughs> and it was the Christians who brought them in and adopted them, right? So we see clearly through Jesus' teaching and followers what justice can look like. Let me ask a question in light of these passages. Who would you consider to be the most vulnerable members of our little community of Nicholasville or Jessamine County? Or who would you say are the most vulnerable people in the United States? I'll suggest some groups of people that might fit the bill today. The poor, sometimes the elderly, uh, young women who are being trafficked as sex workers, black folks, brown folks, women, farmers, children, and you could probably name some people I haven't named. Where in your life have you thought, that's wrong, that shouldn't be happening, to the point where you feel this thing on the inside where you're thinking, I'm gonna bump some heads over this, this is so wrong. Have you ever been there? Part of that thing in you, you get from your heavenly father who desires that human beings treat each other the way they should be treated, right? So again, Amos chapter five, verses 23 and 25. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I won't listen to the music of your harps. No, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. So how do, how do you take this home? I have kind of two parts to today. One is the typical, here's how you do this in your life, but then I want to step out and look at American society as a whole. And the first set, the first thing is embrace honesty if we see anything from the book of Amos, honesty is the best policy. Uh, lying to get ahead the way <coughs> Aunt Becky might be doing, right, 
is wrong. Lying to avoid consequences is wrong. Tell the truth even when it doesn't advantage you to do so. Tell the truth, okay? Students, that means no plagiarism, okay? But embrace honesty. Secondly, stop blaming the poor. It's easy for us to say, Poor people are just lazy, stupid, unwilling to work. You know, we, we kind of assail their character as though they're, you know, they're, they're where they are because they lack the character that we have. Um, nowhere in the book of Amos do you get any kind of thing from the prophet's mouth about the poor being having a character flaw where they deserve to be poor. Amos doesn't throw them under the bus. We shouldn't either. And again, being poor doesn't make you any more virtuous than being rich makes you virtuous, right? You know rich people who are great. You know rich people who are jerks. You probably know some poor people who are great and some poor people who are jerks, okay? So being rich, being poor doesn't make you uh, virtuous, but we could stop blaming the poor. Another thing where you and I could work for justice in our own lives is in our local schools, Uh, I'm going to point out something that's just a reality of the new way that we do life in America. If you're going to be involved in any activity now, taxpayer dollars just don't go to the lengths that they used to go to a decade or two ago. If you want to be on the football team or if you want to cheer or if you want to belong to the band or any kind of activity, there are fees that can be as much as $1,000 a year for the equipment and travel and other kinds of things that you need to do. If you're a poor kid, what does that mean for you? You can't can't join the team, can't join the choir, can't do this. So you could advocate for greater fairness in how things are budgeted with your local school board, or you could do one of the things Jenny and I have done. Over the years, as our kids have been in activities, we've paid their fee, but then we've gone to the director or the person and said, here's that same amount for someone who wants, that you know wants to be on the team, but can't because mom and dad don't have the money. You could do one of those two things. And that's just a little way that we can work for justice in a just society right here in Nicholasville. If I can step out from the personal realm and go to the bigger realm, I want to talk about America as a whole. And the first thing I want to say is that injustice can be systemic. And what I mean by that is it can be part of the air that you breathe and and the way that we all live life and not even know it. I grew up in a small town in in Indiana that was 100% all white. I just... That was my experience, white experience. I didn't know any different, didn't know any black people until I went to college. And I met Michael. Michael became one of my friends. Michael happened to be black, I happened to be white. Couple of different instances where I got edumacated. Uh, One, I've told this story before. Uh, He invited me to go to his church on Sunday night. I was a Baptist, he was a Baptist. I assumed I knew what that meant. So Sunday night came around, I had on my khakis, my button-down shirt, I was ready to go. He comes around the corner in a full suit and says, whoa, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to church. This is not a dress like that. I'm not having my preacher call me out. No, I, if I'm bringing a white friend, like you're gonna. <laughs> so he made me go put on a suit because I didn't know. Like, it doesn't matter whether it's Sunday night. This was back in the 80s. It could be different today, but back then, that's what it meant. I remember another time where we were driving the east-west tollway and the police would pull groups of people over together and they lit, all these blue lights appeared out of nowhere and he panicked because he was driving. And I could see the fear in his eyes and I could see the sweat on his forehead and I was like, you know, I was afraid of the cops back then but like what I saw in him was 
like he was oh, over the top. And that's when I learned where if you're driving and you're black, the consequences can be different for you in America. And it just depends, right? So this is what I mean by injustice can be systemic. It can be part of what goes on that we don't even see. The second thing is that injustice can be tied to public policy. Um, Dave Ramsey talks about uh, Social Security, Medicare, and national debt, and he says that one of the things that's taking place in America is generational theft. Dave Ramsey says this, and he says, old people and rich people are literally taking money out of young people's futures. We're, we're literally spending the money of our children and grandchildren and robbing them. And he calls it generational theft. And part of that has to do with how we fund things in the government. Uh, part of that is the expense and cost of things. When I went to college, uh, I worked in the summer and that paid my fall tuition bill and books. And then I worked two jobs during the school year and it paid for the spring semester. And I went to a private Christian college. Boom. I challenge any of you to do that today. You can't. Absolutely impossible. That's impossible. Okay, that was a throwback for the 90s. But I'm just saying, like, it's different, right? So how we fund and do things. When my father-in-law went to college, almost all of his college was paid for in the form of grants that have largely gone away. But that was back in the 1950s and 60s, and it was a different America. So I just want you to see that public policy can sometimes be tied to injustice, right? And you could probably think of a lot of things that I'm not even mentioning. The last thing is injustice always hits the poor harder. It always hits the poor harder. Uh, I volunteer in our jail, and we have an amazing program going on in our jail where guys are being discipled and getting free from drugs and stuff like that. And here's what I can tell you about what I see in our own jail. If I see somebody that I know from the chamber or from the swim team or something like that, I'll see them in there one week and they're gone because they got a lawyer, they got out on bail, they've, they're negotiating things with the prosecutor, they've got <laughs> options. I will see guys in there that will be in there for two years waiting for their trial to come up. And they're never posting bond, and they, they only have a public defender because they're poor. They don't have anything. So justice gets expressed and mitigated out differently depending upon what you have and what you don't have. Um, another way it hits the poor harder is something that my dad had to be in his bonnet about, and that's payday loans. Uh, my dad was a banker for many, many years, and in the early days of generations, he ran our Financial Peace University classes, and he would always say, I did that as an act of penance because I lent money to people who shouldn't have borrowed it. <laughs> so in later in life, I'm doing penance, and I'm helping people get out of debt, okay? And he just was livid about payday loans. I don't know if you know this, but uh, payday loans can charge their average interest on a payday loan, and if you don't know what these are, um, a payday loan is you have a car expense or something that's come up, you go to a place, you show them that you're getting paid every two weeks, and they say, oh, okay, well, we'll loan you this money, and at the next payday, you just pay us back. The interest they charge is 391% interest. I don't know if you know this. 391% interest. Of course, 80% of the payday loans that are taken out are not paid back at the next payday. And so what happens is the interest jumps to 521%. 521%. Now, I don't know what percentage you think is fair or not fair. The people in the payday loan industry would say, we're providing a service, okay? But 
I'm just gonna tell you that injustice always hits the poor harder. It always hits the poor harder. Back in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, one man happened to notice all the drunks, beggars, and match sellers that were roaming the streets of London. Uh, these people were also largely homeless, and he decided to do something about it. His name was William Booth. William Booth began preaching and ministering to the vulnerable people of London. At that time, the vulnerable people of London were the pickpockets, the thieves, the prostitutes, the gamblers, and the drunkards. And when he began this ministry, he was opposed ferociously by one group of people. Do you know who it was? The titans of the alcohol industry. They were scared to death that this man's movement would actually cause the working poor to stop drinking. And alcoholism was a way that they leveraged control and extracted even more money out of the working poor of London. And so they worked fervently to get William Booth shut down. You may know him because of the organization that he started. It's called the Salvation Army, and they're still around today. In fact, if you go to any ghetto in America, you're probably going to find a citadel of the Salvation Army. How you and I treat the most vulnerable is a measuring stick for our worship. Okay, and again, Amos uh, 5, 23 through, or 5, 21 through 23. Uh, Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I won't listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So you know this from Intergen Sundays. Worship isn't just about singing loud. It's about living loud. And one of the ways that we live loud means that we are seeking and working for justice.